The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome. To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. You might be in a weird spot right now. You might be at a spot where you're just ready for the offseason to be over. Maybe you're feeling a little irritable. Maybe the lack of real football is getting on your nerves. Maybe it's just been too long. Since you've seen Josh Allen throw a touchdown pass to Stefan Diggs, maybe that's it. I can speak from personal experience when I say that I have a tendency to get a little anxious this time of year. I'm simply ready for real football. And sometimes that causes me to get a little snarky. Sometimes it has a tendency to have me be a little irritable. And some of the things that I compress deep down inside myself start to slowly boil to the surface and my pet peeves start showing up. And so as we get closer to the second Buffalo Bills regular season uh, preseason game, wishing for the regular season, I wanted to talk about my football pet peeves. I got a chance to touch on some of the things I believe to be football myths last offseason, but this off season, I wanted to talk a little bit about pet peeves and I wanted to have somebody on who I thought would feel strongly about my pet peeves and who might have some of his own. So I enlisted the aid of my friend, Aaron Quinn, co-host of the cover one Buffalo podcast to come and join me and talk about pet peeves. Aaron, how you doing, dude? I'm doing great, man. And I, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, big fan. And you probably picked the perfect episode for somebody who's also anxious and irritable. That's me to a T. 
Well, I just thought like perpetually annoyed seems to fit our brand. Right. So I just thought we just kind of kind of steer into the skid. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think our it. DMs are basically just venting pet peeves back and forth uh, about the world. And we're just like, you know what? Let's just take that and just formalize it into MP3 format so that long after we're gone, some futuristic civilization will unearth my iPhone and we'll press the button and go, who is this guy talking to this yep. other guy about the pet peeves? This is really for posterity. Absolutely. Aaron, really for posterity. We're doing this for future generations, for the children. Aaron. Absolutely. And on a, a serious note real quick here, before we jump into this, uh, a year ago, uh, not today, but a year ago around this time, I just started coming back into the Twitter fold and, and those that know uh, kind of how I disappeared. But I just want to say thank you to you. Um, I, I don't know that people understand how, close the content community can be uh during that time where i kind of disappeared you constantly reached out to me checked in on me we chatted quite a bit super helpful uh for me to know that other people that do what i do and cared uh, about how i was feeling and it was uh, a big part of me coming back so uh big shout out to you and i i think people think we all sort of compete because we're all in the same space but i think there's actually a lot of good friendships that formed and, and i got a lot closer to you during that experience so i wanted to publicly kind of come out and thank you for that well i appreciate that man the content community is better when you're in it so yeah. we're all we're all blessed to have you be back and, and be part of it and i love what you guys are doing appreciate and, uh, that. i'm just i'm just glad that you're you're around i think you're uh, i think you serve a valuable purpose in the space. I think it's necessary um, to have voices like you in the space. And one of the things I think that uh, is, didn't make my pet peeves list, but is what I would consider to be a, an Aaron Quinn exclusive, right? Pun intended, because we're on the Bruce exclusive, but an Aaron Quinn exclusive is when people talk about NFL players and say things like they suck. Yeah. And you're always like, I mean, they're NFL players, right? They're the top 1% of 1% of football athletes on the planet. Right. Yeah. And I didn't put that in my pet peeves. I hope you didn't put it in yours. I but, didn't know. About it. I thought about it, but that's an, that that's an Aaron Quinn thing. And so every time I see somebody talk about that on Twitter, I think to myself, you know what? I'm glad Aaron is here to remind people of that because that's 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 a big part of this brand and i'm quite frankly i'm just i'm just glad to have you here man so i appreciate it um we are going to jump right in we're going to go through we each have five things on our pet peeve list we're going to start with you you're going to talk about it you're going to elaborate on it a little bit and then you're going to kick it over to me and i can talk about it and then i'll go with mine and back and forth and back and forth we go and we're going to have a little fun with it and just see what we can get off our chest because it's not necessarily festivus but it's close to being festivus yeah. so i got a lot of problems with you people and i'm gonna let you hear about it but we are going to do our best to avoid open confrontation so mm -hmm. we are going to try to frame our pet peeves toward behaviors rather than people because yeah. we're, we're really nice here we're super nice non-confrontational we want to get things off of our chest without attacking yeah. people so aaron Let's start with you. Hit me with your first pet peeve. Nick Wright. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, honestly, it, this is super football related, and it's been something that I've pounded the table for my entire adult life. It's the number one thing I hate about the NFL is defensive pass interference being a spot foul. Uh, I, mm. You giving me the opportunity to talk about pet peeves. That I have a long list of pet peeves that I could have done 100 tonight, but this would have been my number one. Uh, I hate everything about it. I'm a big fan of cornerbacks, defensive backs. I think the NFL game over the last 15, 20 years has made it 
ridiculously hard on the cornerback as is without adding in these ridiculous spot fouls. I don't know that I have the answer. I, I sort of like how college football does it. I, I think that the NFL should maybe even try to consider something like that, but I don't like the fact that in a big spot, you can have a ticky tack call that goes for 15 plus yard penalty when there is no offset that goes the other way for anyone. It's a very one-sided penalty. Uh, it's definitely makes it harder on the defensive backs and only on the defensive backs and, and some what the linebackers, but I think it, it's such a game changing call and we on cover one Buffalo, I'm sure you've heard at nauseum talk about toxic differential plays. And this is one where the refs can influence a toxic differential play. And I, I think those things matter substantially to the result of games and a team can be having an otherwise good game and you get a 30 yard DPI on a ticky tack call. And that's a major influence in a football game. And we talk about how close the NFL is with with these teams in the parody in the league. A lot of these games are decided by three, four plays. And if it's one of these plays is one of the game, ones that decides a game, it just rubs me the wrong way. Um, and, and I get a lot of people will say, Hey, well, if you take away the spot foul, then cornerbacks will just maul guys on, on breakaway plays. And I guess you don't see that a ton in college where they don't have it as a spot foul. So I don't know the answer, but it's definitely a pet peeve of mine. I am all the way in. I am all the way in on this pet peeve. I agree with you hundred percent. Um, Anyone who's listened to my pod for any sort of length of time knows how my passion for defensive backs and coverage in general goes. And I agree with the point that you said about everyone thinks that there's this boogeyman hiding behind door number one. And if you were to change this to a 15-yard penalty, you would constantly have defensive backs dragging down receivers from behind every time they get beat. And if that was the case, the NFL does a really bad job of recognizing that college football serves as sort of a, a test kitchen for a lot of their stuff. And if it doesn't apply that way in college, then it seems unlikely it would magically change and apply that way in the NFL college rule book is just flat out better than the NFL's in a lot of different ways. And this is one of those things. Don't even get me started on the overtime rules, which didn't make my list, but should have made my list because they're so much better in college than they are in the NFL. This is just one of those examples. I absolutely am all the way in on this pet peeve. My first pet peeve was goal line fade routes. Goal line fade routes, man. I understand why it was initially that this play became popular. It was because you had taller receivers, typically dealing with smaller defensive backs. And you thought, if I throw this here, it's a low risk play. There are very, very little chance this is going to get intercepted. But there's a high percent chance that if somebody catches it, it will be the taller receiver. Well, what happened was defensive backs started getting bigger and offenses started getting more efficient and receivers starting to come up with better ways to be more efficient in the red zone, separate. You also came up with pick plays, which are extremely vital in the red zone. And there's all of these litany of different ways to be more efficient in the red zone. And because of it, it's given rise to the idea that in order to be a good red zone receiver, you have to be tall which is not true. Some of the best red zone players in the NFL are not six foot four because in the red zone, it becomes even more important for you to be able to separate because the windows are so small and being able to open those windows is so impressive. You and I have had the opportunity to see people like Cole Beasley get ISOed on the far side in short yardage plays, and he can shake somebody and present himself as a wide open target to quarterback Josh Allen. So goal line fades 
are a problem for me, not just because they're inefficient, but also because they give rise to a narrative that now I now have to squash, which is that in order to be a red zone target, you got to be tall. Uh, you got to be a real tall player. Every time someone comes out in the draft and he's tall, they go, wow, he's a weapon in the red zone. It just immediately goes to that. And I think that it all starts from the origination of the goal line fate. Yeah, this is one. It's not a huge pet peeve for me, but I agree that it's one of these weird things in the NFL that just sort of linger. And I think it's a human trait that uh, when something just has, it's hard for people to train, change things that you traditionally think about uh, in any activity. So um, I don't know that this is going to change anytime soon. I think there's a lot of still old school ideas and you see even this preseason guys working on it. I think it still can work if you have those matchups, if you, if you have a, a big tall receiver and a quarterback that could put on the spot. I think one of the problems with it not being a super effective play is there aren't a lot of quarterbacks that can throw consistently good fades and there, you don't have the matchups consistently with the big receiver. But I agree with you that I don't look to guys to be, to have size, to be a red zone threat. It's about catching tight windows. It's about, uh, you know, being able to hang on to the ball again. Hey, the, the field's a lot shorter. I think the new goal line, should be misdirection. I think if you can create some misdirection in the in the red zone, that that is one of the easiest ways to get touchdowns. Where you, you know off a of play action or something like that, where you're, you're you're getting somebody open in space, or what Cole's, Cole Beasley does, you know, uh, just that shiftiness and, and being able to get wide open in the corner. So I think that's the path to success in the red zone. And I don't know why yet that uh, football hasn't kind of gone away from that idea that you need to have big targets uh and throw it as high as you can to those targets it's a weird tradition that's stuck it is and i like what you said about misdirection there because in the red zone you have everything's compressed like you said everything happens faster there's less space to deal with and you have less amounts of time to recover from a misstep and so the same principles that apply to like rpos in the open field right where you have a linebacker who takes one step out of position, now all of a sudden there's a window. Those same things apply in the red zone, but they can be infinitely more deadly because you lose points at that point yeah. when that happens. So I agree with you. Misdirection is a spot where they probably need to do a, a better job. I think zone read at the at the goal line is extremely effective. And we've yeah. seen... Especially with Allen. Especially with Allen. And one of the reasons why I think he's going to continue to be you know, a red zone weapon and a, a fantasy asset is because... Brian Dable smart enough to understand that that one misstep at the goal line is a lot different than one misstep in the open field. You make yep. it in the open field, it costs you five or six yards. You make it in, in the end zone, then it costs you six points. So, yep. okay, what's your next one? Uh, this one is one that is a constant battle on Twitter, and I've I'm sure that people have thought that I'm stuck on one side of this argument, but I'm not. And it's the analytics verse film. And there's mm. radicals in both sides, just like all things in life that I think there's some radicals out there on Twitter that primarily lock into just analytics and that the game should be played in a computer simulation. And if you do everything the simulation says, then you'll have success. I think there's some people that are just real old school and just look at the film and, and all the answers are there when really the answer is that, in my opinion, that analytics is a tool that provides you... Uh, ways to watch the film better and to look at some things that you may have missed when, you know, at cover one, we use analytics every day uh, when we're watching it and when we're in our chats and what drives guys like Eric to look 
at specific things in the film is the analytics. So look at the analytics and say, okay, then why is this? And let me go back and look at why these stats and data are showing up this way. I think too often the people that, you know, make a living off a of film or make a living off analytics, just double down on their own side and don't appreciate that there really is a, a symbiotic relationship between these two things. And I think the people that are doing it the best utilize both tools and it doesn't have to be one or the other that it really needs to be both in order to, to really get the best view of the game. I would agree with that. I think that one of the things that people don't understand is that you can't answer all the questions with one tool. You can't accomplish all of the goals with one tool. And one of the things that we've talked about on this show many times before is that how and why are far more important interrogatives than what. And mm -hmm. in order to know multiple answers to the questions, then you have to have multiple tools to get there. So I think analytics does a great job of telling you what. and But why and how a lot of times have to be answered with qualitative answers. And yeah. those qualitative answers can't be achieved through the use of analytics. So I'm not saying that there even needs to be a war at all. And that's the hilarious thing is that we're picking sides of a battle that doesn't need to be fought. Right. It's, just, it's the strangest thing. We manufactured this war out of nothing. I, th I think you brought up a great point last year. I think it was one of your um, threads or uh, one of your shows discussing maybe uh, Taron Johnson or Levi Wallace and they, they gave up a number of receptions and everyone on Twitter is talking about, Hey, he got burned. He got picked on. And then you went back and looked at the actual reception. So there's a lot of people just seeing the, the stat or the data point and saying this person had a bad game, but then you pulled it back and said, well, when you look at these receptions, you look at the routes that were run and the coverage, which is also important in the responsibilities of that player. And all of that combined shows that, Hey, it wasn't as bad of a game as the stats showed and not all those receptions were bad receptions. And I think that's where the important relationship between the two comes in. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. Stick with me. We've got more things to talk about. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. We are having a Festivus for the rest of us with Aaron Quinn co-host of the Cover One Buffalo podcast. You can find him on, on Twitter at Aaron Quinn 716 And we are having some discussions. We are having some, some cathartic discussions. We're getting some things off of our chest about some things that bother us. I talked about goal line fade routes. He talked about film versus analytics. We talked about all sorts of fun things. And we're going to keep going with my next pet peeve. And that is horrible football uniforms okay so you are a multi-billion dollar entertainment enterprise with tons of access to the best marketing firms in the galaxy and the unlimited ability to do things like sign ndas and have focus groups and yet consistently you roll out uniforms that essentially every single person hates. How long did the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have awful uniforms? And literally everyone you know, including all the Tampa Bay fans I know, hated the uniforms. How is it possible for you to roll out uniforms that are globally despised? And you're like, wait, really? That's what happened? I had no idea. It's almost like the research that you have at your fingertips, you didn't use at all. 
as a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And it drives me absolutely bonkers. Now, sometimes an NFL team will do something magical and wonderful. And the overwhelming majority of the consumers will love it. And I, of course, I mean, the Buffalo Bills gave us white face masks. Right. But, but... I think that's the big takeaway from the preseason, really, is that the, the white face backs are magical, right? Mm, I mean, we can so agree good. on that. So good. so good. So clean. You know, and I appreciate your opinion on that as someone who does graphic design and to someone who does edits, um, coming from someone who is not artistic at all. I spent an hour last week trying to learn, no, two weeks ago, trying to learn how to insert words on top of a graphic. That is it. I didn't touch a single graphic until two weeks ago. For the first time in my entire life, so spoiler alert, I'm not a graphic designer, and <laughs> and I learned how to insert a font onto it, and I was so proud of myself, and I showed it off to everybody I knew, but I'm not a professional. They're professionals, yeah. and they have access to unlimited resources, and they still consistently get it wrong. My pet peeve is bad football uniforms. There is no excuse. Yeah, the Bills, this hits home because that first uniform change of the modern Bills was terrible, right? Like, I think that was universally, even the players hated wearing those uniforms. They, they talked about it. The Reebok era was was real bad in, in the NFL in uniforms. Those Titans uniforms were pretty bad. Um, I, I don't disagree with you here, but I will say I think less is more. When it comes to uniforms, I'm a big fan of the classics. I love that the Bills have gone back to a more classic look. I like looks like the Colts. Um, you know, even at the, I don't like the Packers colors, but just those classic NFL uniforms, I think they stand the test of time. Uh, the Bears, you, you look at some of these teams that really have not changed at all or have had very minor changes, and they always look good. I think uh, too often they try to modernize these uniforms and, and make it look you know, it almost looks like when uh, the Madden generic teams, they, they gave you an opportunity to make your own team and, and these crazy uniforms and stuff. I, it feels like the designers are looking at that. And the problem for football is not everyone is a sleek, athletic looking wide receiver or running back, which they seem to design these uniforms for in their you know, Photoshop or illustrator programs. They have a, a model of a guy running the ball with a super athletic body, but then you have to put that same uniform on John Feliciano and it doesn't <laughs> quite look right when the numbers get stretched out and things like that. And it just ends up looking pretty terrible when you have 11 guys, all different shapes and sizes in these skin type versions of these uniforms. And they're just too much. I think classic is better. I think a lot of the teams should go back to classic looks uh, that have gone away from them. And I agree with you. I think, I think less is more. And I think that's true a lot of the time with design uh, as well. I think the same elements apply. It almost reminds me of the old NFL Europe uniforms. Yeah. And basically every that. arena team you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Those two things, the arena teams and the NFL Europe teams are what I get to every time I see an NFL team try to modernize their uniforms. Don't even get me started on the toilet seat that was around the Buffalo Bills necklines during Terrible. the it was just it was, when they it was first switched bad. back to nike that's yeah. they all had those collars they were terrible yeah and uh same with like these new leagues that pop up because again you're trying to make a statement that you're this new league and you're fresh and they all just look like almost like made for tv movie you know generic mm -hmm. uniforms that they would make for something like that i don't understand you're right there's a lot of money involved in this and for them to fail so often seems 
seems like something that the NFL should get right here soon. I know that talking about uniforms on a purely audio medium is probably not very smart of me. That probably wasn't well thought out, but it was enough of a pet peeve I had to put it on. Aaron, what's your next one? Yeah, this one drives me nuts in the sense that uh, I have to have these conversations with a lot of people all the time. And I feel like I feel lost almost in that I think we talk a lot about the bills and obviously my Twitter feed is, is primarily bills focused, but I think a lot of people get hyper focused on their own team to this where they don't really understand necessarily how rosters are created throughout the league or or deficiencies in rosters throughout the league. And so like examples will be guys that I've defended in the past, a Levi Wallace, uh, uh, Taron Johnson, where people will, you know, hyper focused that these guys, we need, way better players at this position and not realizing that kind of league wide and with his peers, Levi Wallace, isn't that bad. And Taron Johnson, isn't that bad in, in comparison to most of their peers. And when you look at rosters throughout the league, like the, their same guys are lining up as cornerback twos and slot cornerbacks all around the league. And I think we just, we get so focused on our own team that we don't realize that other teams also have deficiencies and we're not alone in, in not having a perfect roster. And there's never been a perfect roster in the league. And I think, some of it comes from this like Madden culture a little bit as well, where you can just build whatever team you want a little bit of the fantasy football culture where your team's fully star studded. And, but that isn't the way the salary cap and the NFL is set up where you're always going to have some deficiencies and that's okay because other teams do too. And so it's a big problem for mine where everybody wants every position to be perfect and, and better than all the other teams in the league. And that's just not how the NFL works. Anytime I have the ability to slip in a salary cap is real thing. I'm just going to yeah. go ahead and do that. Slip that in right there. Yep. Uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't make my list, but you know, I'm, I'm using these little sidebars to expand. That's for Greg. That's an episode for that's, Greg. That's for Greg. I'm actually going to have Greg on here in a little bit. Spoiler alert for good, those of good. you who are, are looking for the schedule. I'm actually going to have Greg on here in a little bit. So keep an eye out for that. But no, I, I, I think that this is interesting because I think one of the best things you can do as a football fan on Twitter is follow other beat writers, follow beat writers of other teams, follow writers for other teams, follow members of the athletic for other teams. I think it helps you have a more holistic view of your own team. Exactly what you're saying. Joe Marino has a tendency to say a host of locked on bills that you can, you can sometimes gain a lot of wisdom by looking at other teams and evaluating them with the same clinic critical eye that you evaluate your own team. So, you know, watch some preseason games that aren't your own and listen to the announcers who are plugged in entirely to that one team, right? You're watching the Chiefs feed or you're watching the Titans feed. And the only thing they talk about is the Chiefs or Titans, right? Because that's the feed that you're watching and watching that for the local area that they're in at the time. And you hear them talk about the cornerback three battle. And the nickel corner battle and who's going to be this team. One of the storylines surrounding the Cleveland Browns is who's going to be the third linebacker. And you're like, oh, that stuff happens for everybody. Like that's, that's a normal thing. And I'm not saying that we can't wish for upgrades to certain positions, but you can't have all stars across the board. It's not a thing. And so we just understand that. And I think a little bit of a broader perspective will help us understand that that's a good one so the next one on my list is another x's and o's ones and this is tight bunch concepts against blitz heavy defense so i see this sometimes very rarely in the nfl but i see it a lot of college and that is you have a blitz heavy defense and you make the job as difficult as humanly possible on your quarterback by having a a ton of tight bunch concepts 
And one of the things that I think the Bills fans started to learn a little bit during the Chan Gailey area era is that when you spread out a defense, you are making identification easier for your quarterback. You're making protection calls easier for your quarterback because you're not bunching together all of the defenders that then have a shorter distance to cover to the quarterback. You are spreading them out so that you can see all of them. It's a little bit like, you know, trying to trying to get in a gunfight in a forest versus a, a flat desert, right? I, if I can see you coming from a while away, I can make appropriate contingency plans. And consistently, we find offenses who go, well, man, this is what we do. No, this is our stuff. This is our identity. It's what we do. Okay, well, that's great, but you're facing Greg Williams, and Greg Williams is going to bring the water boy to come blitz you. So what you should probably do is make, make the job easier on your quarterback for identification purposes. Sometimes what you'll see is, you'll see things like, well, the offensive coordinator didn't do his quarterback any favors. You'll see that phrase kind of thrown around. This is one of the scenarios in which that's actually fairly apt. And I see it a lot more in college than I see in the NFL, but it has always bothered the crap. I mean, Mike Martz did this all the time. And now that there's really no Mike Martzian sort of tree left in the NFL, we see a lot of it less. Poor JT O'Sullivan and Mark Bolger were sacked 5 billion times because they had five-step drops from under center with bunch concepts with five-man protections. And it was disastrous. And you're going to get your quarterback killed and nobody wants to see your quarterback killed. And I'm going to, I'm going to calm down now and I'm good to go. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, with any type of concept, I think that overuse of it is going to be bad for you. And I'm a big fan of, we talk a lot about quarterbacks, the hardest thing outside of hitting a baseball, right? Like it's the hardest position to play. We just saw uh, Eric was breaking down the video of Greg Rousseau's pressures. And you have a guy that's not even blitzing, but a guy that's in the backfield, you know, a full yard and a half in the backfield with like point something seconds on the clock, just because of his length, you have two seconds maybe to figure out what this defense is doing and, and get the ball out. So putting a guy in a five step drop and bunching the formation together. So you can't see what the defense is doing. Now you have to add a second or two to figure it out. It just doesn't seem like a winning formula and in the fast pace and the, the game's only getting faster. Players are only getting faster. Sal Capaccio was asking, Sean McDermott this week about positionless football. And I, I think it's heading there. Not that totally positionless, but these guys, these uh, JOKs of the world that can kind of fly around and play. I don't want to get in a bunch formation with that guy flying around, or even uh, I know he's not a real traditional safety, but a Jamal Adams, I don't want to get him up on the line in a bunch formation, knowing that somebody's coming on a blitz. Uh, so I, I, I don't know why uh, teams kind of held on to that for a long time, but you don't see, you're right. You don't see a ton of it in the NFL. Uh, but when you are, I don't watch a ton of college football during the year, but in scouting for the draft, you do see it a lot more in college. And yeah, it, it, this goes to another one that I didn't put, but colleges don't seem to necessarily always put players in a, the best position uh, over and over again. And it yeah. isn't, yeah, that's a, we could have a whole podcast about how college <laughs> coaches don't do their players any favors. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very specific, it's a very specific and very rare sort of a, I'm, I'm not really painting with a very broad brush. That's a very, very, very specific sniper like problem, but yeah. it's one that particularly gets under my cross. So I wanted to bring it up and you can, you can yours, get man. some advantage. You can get some advantages offensively with, like, it's, I'm not saying don't ever use it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it's easier on your quarterback when you don't. 
Um, I'm going to switch over to some personal now. Uh, okay. And this one I experienced this week. And so I'll, I'll talk about how I experienced it. But it's people that believe they're above the rules. Mm. Drives me absolutely wild. Uh, signs in stores. And you just totally blatantly ignore it. Or whatever the situation may be. I was stuck in traffic on the 90. Uh, coming home from Maine this past week. Uh, big accident. Put us back an hour and a half. And I saw a number of people just getting in the breakdown lane and driving through as if the rules didn't apply to them, that we're all on the road and sharing the road together and they just can do what they want because they're much more special than the rest of us. Or I saw a number of motorcycles coming right through the middle uh, of traffic and and off to the uh, sides and just blowing through the traffic and didn't have to wait in line with the rest of us. And it absolutely drove me nuts for the hour and a half I sat in traffic. Every time I saw someone, my wife was just like, you got to get over, you got to get past it. And I cannot, I cannot get over wherever I am, people not following the rules like the rest of us. It's absolutely obnoxious. I hate it. I actually had an inverse situation happen to me. So my wife and I were sitting in traffic on, we were actually on the way to Buffalo uh, about a month or two months ago. And at the time there was a big accident on the highway on our way to Buffalo. And we were sitting in traffic and people were passing on the right side. And my wife has the same anger toward those people that you do. And she was like, I can't believe these people. They feel like they're above the law. And you know, they're going to get all the way over and then they're going to turn on their blinker and want somebody to let them in. And yeah. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm sitting there going, you know, I'm uh, trying to be calm. But at this point, I'm already really upset about like a bunch of other stuff. This was like thing number seven that happened to me that day. It was not a good morning. And I was like stuck in traffic then. And I thought to myself, now I got to deal with narcissists right now. That's that. That's what I got to have. People who just think that just the entire world just revolves around them. So yes, I am with you on that one. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Icing the kicker. All right. That's my next one. Icing the kicker. I have no proof that icing the kicker actually works. It just annoys the people who are watching. <laughs> yeah, it, it is annoying. I think like when it first became a thing, I think it worked. Like the first two times or so I remember, I think Jeff Fisher did it to somebody a couple of times and everyone was like, oh, that worked. It was like in the early 2000s or even earlier than that in the 90s. And then it has always become a thing. Um, yeah, I don't understand it either. I think in certain situations, it's almost a waste of a timeout. Um, and I don't know. That'd be an interesting statistic is the success rate versus normally, you know, not icing kicker versus taking a time out i'd love to see the data because i can't really think of a time where icing worked or affected the outcome i haven't seen any indication that it actually does work i will tell you the one scenario i want to make sure i do a give back here where i would actually if i was a coach make sure that i did it and that is if i'm if i'm dealing with swirling winds if i'm dealing with swirling winds and they happen to die off for a minute sure i will call a timeout to see if they'll come back hope hope that they come back hope they come back for a second because if i can delay it for 30 45 seconds sometimes you know the wind dies down and i keep myself an eye on those little flags on the goalpost and if it dies down i'm going to call a timeout and wait and see if it comes back so that is the exception to the rule but in more than anything else it just annoys me as the person who's watching it because i'm just like come on come on on i just want this to be over with either win or lose if i'm the defending team or if i'm the team kicking the field goal either way i want this to be over and all they're doing is annoying me and 50 to seventy thousand people in the stadium so icing the kicker no proof it works 
If somebody out there has proof that it works, I'd be more than happy to accept that. I have seen no proof that indicates it works, and it just annoys the ever-living BGCs out of me. Don't kickers sort of assume it's kind of like yeah. it's not a surprise anymore, right? I, if they probably prepare for it as a, it's those just a practice kick now. Yeah, and there these guys are so dialed in mentally to be an NFL punter or care or specialist in general. You only have maybe four or five opportunities to perform your task in a game. These guys are so dialed in uh, in in terms of attention and, and focus that icing them is not a thing. Um, I'm going another person around, and this is. Not an attack on you, Bruce. This is a um, this is a conversation I had with my brother-in-law, and it spanned three days uh, during our vacation. We we were at camp together, and he's a big Traeger guy, and he also is a big sous vide guy. I know you're a big sous vide guy, I and am. I have a big pet peeve, and it isn't in the fact that you can't make good food with Traegers, and you can't make good food with sous vides. I, I know that you can. I've had it, and then I've had delicious food on both. They just drive me nuts. And because it feels like it feels like technology cheating a little bit to me. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it drives me a little bit nuts because I'm a purist in a lot of these things. And I'm very I like the long process of food and cooking. I, I like the slow smoking and controlling the fire. I like all those things that go into handmade food. And so the concepts of technology basically ba- you basically are using a Tesla uh, you know, a self-driving vehicle to get from point A to point B. And I love technology and I love Teslas and I love all this stuff, but just not with my food. I don't know why I just can't get over it. And I, it's a, it was a heated conversation with my brother-in-law and I almost reached out to you, but I was on vacation and I didn't have great reception uh, because during the conversation, I was going to say, I'm arguing with him right now, but I knew that we were going to have this talk. So I wrote it down on my list to talk this out with you. I think that's great. As, as a guy who loves to sous vide his steaks, I have posted on my Instagram numerous times with my steaks that I have sous vide. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons cooked why perfectly, I, by the way, yeah, cooked fantastically. Yes. But I, if you, if you came to me and said, that's cheating, I would say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is. I would call it dummy proofing, but I understand that's why fair. you call it yeah. cheating. And the reason why I'm, I'm okay. Calling it dummy proofing is because I recognize that margins for error on traditional purist food are far beyond my own personal capabilities. So I'm not talented enough to be able to get the margin of error small enough that I'm happy with it. I Now, people who have been grilling for 47 years have done so many burgers and so many steaks that their margin for error is so small that, dude, you do you, man. Sure. For people like me, right, who are responsible primarily for the meat preparation in the household in which that I live, I, I cannot suffer myself a single overcooked steak, a mm-hmm. single screwed up pork chop. I can't do it. And so for me, dummy proofing things is just a recognition of my own failure. It's a recognition of my own lack of skill. And I'm okay with that. It's a sous vide for me is a way for me to humble myself and go, you know what? I'm not good enough. And that's okay. Like I, I made peace with this. I made peace with the fact that I'm not good enough and I need help. And so when I get things like that, for me, it's just like, yes, I recognize that I'm doing this because I'm not talented enough to not do it. I think you could cook a perfect steak every time. And here's, I find it humbling when I screw one up 
or uh, mess it up on the grill or a charcoal is I, I use my gas grill primarily and charcoal. Uh, sometimes I struggle with, I don't tend to overcook stuff too much, but it's a struggle because it's a different cook every time. Right. But I enjoy that challenge. And while I don't want to mess up and don't overcook, it's humbling when I do. And it's a, what did I do wrong? What, what do I have to do? I have to go back and kind of re look at the cook and, and what, what processes was I, you know, taking where, where was I off? Uh, and to be better on the next time, which I think, I think you're wired in that same way uh, a little bit, but it, my pet peeve is more towards Traegers, especially. Uh, I was a competition smoker for about five years. I did the circuit uh, in New England, and I was a Kansas City uh, judge, Kansas City Barbecue Society uh, certified judge. And when people like take to social media to talk about their smoker cooker and that they go out and smoke meats, there's a huge difference between setting something in a system that controls the, you know, pellets going in and the fire going in and the time to cook versus controlling a live fire and smoking something yourself. And for people to take on that persona as, Hey, I'm a, I smoked this thing. And it's like, well, you really just kind of threw it in the oven essentially. And the, the oven smoked it for you. Uh, that's really where my big pet peeve is that you're claiming something that isn't really happening and you're not a smoker cooker. And if you showed up to a, in my opinion, if you showed up to like a barbecue competition with other people smoking on traditional offset boxes, they would think that's cheating uh, in, in most senses and that it's not smoker cooking. So it's, it's kind of douchey purist from me, but it's, it's something that bugs me. You know what? I, I accept it. I accept it. I completely, I completely get it. I completely get it. Okay, here we go. This is my last one. And you knew this was going to come up at some point because mm -hmm you know, for the hashtag for the brand, it has yeah. to come up thinking wins are quarterback stat. Here we go. All yeah. right. So I, I have mentioned this multiple times. I have done an entire pod on why wins aren't a quarterback stat. You should write but a I book. Have, I, I should write a book, but I have an additional piece of information to contribute to the argument now. And that is that frequently I see the people who think wins are a quarterback stat are these same people who rail against the usage of analytics because they say the game is too complicated to simplify with numbers. So the game is simultaneously too complicated to simplify with numbers, but is not complicated enough that I can't simplify the entire outcome of a football game and put it on one person's shoulders. A yeah. lot of times those two people are the same people. That Venn diagram is a circle. Yeah. And that is a contributing factor to this argument that really the whole me railing against wins being a quarterback stat is simply me trying to convince people of how complicated football is. That's really what it is. I did an entire pod earlier this off season with Jay Spence, the King, who's co who's the host of the code of conduct and co-host of the overreaction podcast, co-host of the chop up. And we talked about all of the different factors that go into winning and losing a game. We actually yeah. came up with 13 of them and we were trying to simplify. We were right. trying to do it. If you wanted to go by player by player, you could go player by player, but I don't even feel comfortable doing wins as a stat for a player in basketball. And there's way less of those people on the floor. You're a Bulls fan. You know sure. this, right? I'm not a basketball guy, so I don't know enough to be able to comment on it. But I'm not even comfortable having wins as a goalie stat or a pitcher stat in baseball. And they have way more effect over the game than a quarterback right. does. So for me, wins being a quarterback stat, absolute pet peeve. I will fight it until I'm blue in the face. I've got people on my side, though. I've got Trey Wingo on my side. I've got Mina Kimes on my side. I've got people. We are fighting the good fight against wins being a quarterback stat. 
I've been battling this since before Twitter. I'm a uh, I'm from New England originally. There's a lot of fans that listen now. Uh, moved to Maine, which is kind of deep New England territory, uh, in 1999, and that's right about the time the New England Patriots got good. And uh, the Bills were not very good, as we all know, from 1999 until basically two years ago, three years ago. And constantly, I would just hear about Tom Brady's wins as the reason why he's so great. And I'm, I've always thought Tom Brady is a really great quarterback, but not because of the wins. Uh, that's not a way that to justify because I can break down those wins and show a number of examples where the defense won games, especially a lot of the big games in his career and other players stepped up and things like that. So I've been fighting this fight for a long time because the majority of the people in my personal life that watch football would just talk about the wins of Tom Brady as to why he's the best. And I'll make a great argument for Tom Brady being the best, but it's not going to be about his total number of wins uh, because I, I agree with you. It's football is so, so complicated that you can't, it's really hard for any one particular stat, let alone wins. I just had the argument the other day with my brother and it got pretty heated when I was saying, I think Stefan Diggs is a top three, four, talented wide receiver in the NFL. And he was like, well, you know, Devontae Adams is the best. And he had double the touchdowns. And I was like, well, you can't just like isolate touchdowns and Mm. confirm who's better or not, because that takes away so much context of how the players use and all this. And I was trying to get into the context and the variables that go into statistics. And he just got stuck on touchdowns and that's where he wanted to be. And it's sort of the same thing as QB wins. Like you can't look at any one statistic and say, this is, the answer uh, and QB wins is probably the most egregious of all those sort of isolating one stat. We don't want to use passing yards for a quarterback as like the end on be all, but yet we're willing to use the thing that's even less contextual and that's wins. So nobody would get me started on 300 yard. Yeah. 300 yard games. I was actually kind of surprised that didn't come up in this conversation. I kind of thought it was going to. Yeah. I've said, Hey, Josh had a nice run last year of 300 yard games that equal to wins. So I'm, I still don't believe it's a, a equals wins, but I'm not going to fight people on it as passionately. I mean, a couple of years ago, Jameis Winston, of course, had a unbelievable season as far as passing yards. Nobody would say that was a great season. Nobody. No. So we're all accepting of the fact that we don't want to equate passing yards with quarterback ability. We, we know that. Because it's a, it's a raw statistic. Like, oh, man, it's vast, all this. we're missing all this context. But you're going to go one step farther than that. Like, you're, you're worse than that. Wins are worse than passing yards yeah, to right. use to, to do context. So, for me, I, I just I, – I, we're almost there. We're, I feel like there's a tide turning from a football culture standpoint. And I hope to be – I hope I live to see it. I hope I live to see the day when wins being a quarterback stat is just an incredibly unpopular opinion and it's no longer part of vernacular. I'm, uh, I think I think most people are heading that way. And one thing with this list uh, of pet peeves and just things in general uh, that I try to remind myself almost constantly, I should put a sticky note on my computer that Twitter's not real life. And even like the majority of football fans aren't on Twitter uh, and, and interacting on Twitter. And that I think a lot of the loud people that show up in mentions with these uh, hard ideas, they're the minority. And I, I think it's just a loud minority that shows up in our mention. I don't think most people feel that QB wins are stat. I, I think you're on the right side of history here uh, and that most people agree with that. The history books will, will prove me right. That's what will happen. Okay. So I'm going to recap mine. You can recap yours and we'll make sure we get out of here. So for me, goal line fade routes, 
horrible uniforms, tight bunch concepts against blitz heavy defenses, icing the kicker, and thinking wins are a quarterback stat. AQ, refresh your memory. DPIs should not be spot fouls. Take on what college is doing. Uh, analytics versus film. It's a symbiotic relationship. Let's stop fighting and, and make better content together. Uh, hyper-focus on our own team with setting unrealistic expectations of what a roster should look like. Uh, like you you really said that best. Look around the league, follow other teams, and, and get a more holistic perspective of the league. Uh, people that are above the rules. I hate it. I'll never, I'll never like it. And then uh, Traegers and Sudvi are cheating in cooking, uh, and I'll, I'll die on that hill. Okay. Well, thanks so much for being here, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate you taking in some time and letting us sort of vent a little bit. I think it's cathartic to have all this conversation and just kind of get it off my chest. Aaron, thanks so much for being a part of this, man. I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, what you're up to, what's coming, where they can make sure that they reach out and connect with you. Yeah. You, first of all, thanks again for having me on the show. Big fan. I appreciate it. And you can find me at Aaron Quinn, seven, one, six. You can find me on the cover one Buffalo podcast every single Wednesday with our, both our mutual friend, Greg Thompson Uh, cover one. We've got shows, all through the week now we got a lot of good talent guys that have been on your show uh as, as your fans know and we're really excited for the season we brought on a lot of talent uh we're really excited to ramp up our content as the season comes it's good to get a preseason game under everybody's belts and and get ready for the content uh so we're excited for the season to come out and start doing the post game shows again uh, and all that stuff so follow follow everyone over at cover one and and everyone over at buffalo rumblings because it's going to be a fun thing we've been waiting for a season like this bruce we have been. And you know what? If, if you miss out, if you're not part of this bevy of content, if you're not part of this litany of good content that you're going to have available to you, I really don't have anything else to say for you. I really don't, except for that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumble.